Hey folks, it's Carl at Sterling Health and Fitness, and thanks for tuning in today. So our topic today is the physics of fitness, and I have a special guest to speak on this subject with me today. He is the founder of Reembody, which is a, an international movement education company. I'd like to welcome to my program Kevin Moore. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me. It is my pleasure. Very happy to be here, Carl. Glad we got to connect on this. So, Kevin, um, I'm really interested in this. When we first started corresponding about doing the interview, you sent me some notes. And one of the things I find is really fascinating that I hadn't really thought of is that we, we talk about in the fitness world, you know, biology a lot. However, when I read your notes here, we're looking. Uh, you're looking at this also in a uh, from a physical or physics perspective. I was wondering if we could just talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think we forget sometimes that uh, traditional physical forces like gravity and inertia and friction uh, act on living tissue just the same way they act on non-living tissue. And to me, there's no reason why we can't use the same kind of observations and measurements that we use to make accurate predictions of the way objects move in the physical world also to living tissue. And in fact, I find that sometimes if we get too bogged down in the, in the biological behavior of tissues, we can lose some of the more obvious mechanical behaviors uh, that are simply a product of things like, you know, ground reaction forces and kind of impact behavior and vibration and elasticity. Uh, and, and so I like to really take these things into consideration when I'm trying to problem solve, you know, injury management issues. That's really interesting. I... Um Especially going back here, when you talk about uh, the impact on non-living tissue, for example, or objects, and mm -hmm. predictions uh, on living tissue, that's I just had never thought about that. I think that's really interesting. So how, like, how did you come up with this concept, or how did you come up with this approach? I'm just curious. Well, um you know, when I was in school, uh, I originally went to school for chemistry, and the hard sciences in general were always uh, of, of great interest to me. And, and, you know, I was really into biology, but I could never really pick which of the hard sciences was the one that was most interesting to me. And so I worked in chemistry for a while, and I got used to, um, like, I used to thinking along the lines of physics and chemistry in my work. And then when I stopped working in a laboratory environment and started working more in a fitness environment, which, by the way, was the best decision I ever made, um, uh, I found that the, that thinking remained. You know, I, I, I still had the, you know, acceleration of gravity memorized, and I still had, you know, the, the principles of Newtonian mechanics were still something I thought about a lot. And so when I'd watch people move, it was, it was just instinctive to say, you know, like, when a foot hits the ground, I'm not just interested in the way that the person's foot is behaving or the way the person's knee is behaving. I'm interested in the way that the impact force that hit that foot is traveling through the tissues of the body. And it, it was just an, it was an instinctive way of, of viewing it, given my, my background in hard sciences. And it wasn't like I ever, you know, I didn't go on to get 
you know, any, any, I, didn't, I don't know if I went to degree in physics, but I just, I liked it. It was, it was something that worked for me as I was going through school. And it ended up being an application that I hadn't thought of either until I watched it in action. Interesting. Um, is there a way that we can measure that in the body? Well, there's a, there's a quantitative and a qualitative way of measuring it. So, um, for the kind of work that I do, I do very little quantitative measurement. So I, you know, I typically don't uh, use impact sensors uh, to measure physical forces in the body. But through qualitative measurement, by observing how forces travel through the body, by looking at, say, the relative acceleration of one bone versus another, or um, uh, the the kind of relative amount that a body slows down or speeds up during certain phases of gait, etc. You can you can make predictions at relative amounts rather than needing to measure specific amounts. And in my experience, that's sufficient. Okay. You know, I don't I don't need to know exactly I don't need to know exactly how much force is traveling. I just need to know how much force is traveling relative other sections of the body. Okay, so this is. It's really interesting. Uh, for example, I can't help going into uh, thinking about Dr. Dr. Emily's stuff a little bit, partially because sure. she so many of her courses, and I know you know her well, and um, do some teaching for her as well. So it gets me thinking about um, level two barefoot training specialists where we get into gait analysis. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Do you have a, a method when you're looking at gait, when you're looking at, you know, somebody who's moving, of how, like, how you observe this qualitative um, aspect? Absolutely. And, in fact, I get really excited about gait. <laughs> uh, I, I, the the gait process is, I, I think, one of the coolest things. And, and I think breaking it down in terms of how force is traveling is, is really exciting. I just get really excited every time I get to do it. And, uh, um, and so what, what, what I like about the gait cycle is that we're, we're – we're talking about taking forces that are moving in a particular direction and looking at the very interesting way that the peculiar geometry of the skeleton causes force traveling one direction to shift into force traveling another. So in its most kind of, um, uh, in the most basic way, what we can say is that when you step down and you have initial contact uh, between your front foot and the floor, the, the impact force on the foot has a very specific direction, right? Because, you know, gravity is always moving the same direction, but because the body in motion has a certain amount of inertia, when the foot hits the ground, the, the impact reaction force, the ground reaction force, is traveling uh, kind of up, opposite of gravity, but also slightly medial as a result of the um, inertia of the body in motion. And what's interesting is that a force that's going up and medial isn't very useful to a body that's trying to travel forward. And so there's an absolutely a, just fascinating relationship of bones between initial contact and push-off phase, where your skeleton turns that up and medial force into something that is traveling forward, so that we can use it as propulsion. And... Um, and so kind of specifically what I'm referring to here is the relationship between 
um, and the, the first inference point is the relationship between the calcaneus and the tibia. Because as soon as the calcaneus uh, hits the floor on initial contact, there is this lovely little um, coronal plane sliding action that takes place. And because of the attachment of the ligaments between the calcaneus and the tibia, that causes the tibia to dramatically internally rotate. Now, suddenly, we've gone from a force which is moving more or less up and down to one that's moving, that's rotating. We've gone from impact force to torque. And torque is the most useful kind of force for a skeleton. Okay. And so from that point, we can start tracking how these torque behaviors then move from joint to joint. So it sounds like... When we hit, you know, that phase one, we're in a slightly inverted position, hopefully. And that mm-hmm. torque is coming when we, we go into the eversion ver- e and we load energy, right? So the slide That's occurs. Right. We get back to inversion on phase five, push it off, which externally rotates us a little bit, propulsion. Right. How, um, how are you measuring this? I'm just curious, because... That's fascinating. Well, again, so so um, I use a call to interrupting a little bit, but uh, maybe a better question is how, instead of how do you measure it, how do you do you have a specific way of observing this to analyze it? Yes, yes, and I would say it is it is a form of measurement. Um, I do a lot of observation of relative acceleration. Uh, so, for instance, going back to our example about calcaneus. Uh, acting on TV and internal rotation. One of the ways that I will frequently assess people um, is through a very simple uh, weight shift exercise where I'll typically have them stand in some kind of a staggered stance, um, usually with the dominant foot forward to begin, and I'll have them just show me what it looks like when they dump all their weight from back foot to front foot. Right? And just repeat that a couple of times. And what I'm initially looking for is... I'm going to watch the tibia and the femur, the ipsilateral femur, and I'm going to watch to see, as their weight shifts onto that front foot, which of those bones is rotating the most, which one is rotating the fastest, and which one is rotating first. And and if I see, as they dump their weight onto their front foot, that their femur, say, is internally rotating at a faster rate or it's internally rotating in anticipation of the tibial internal rotation, bam, we have a problem. So we're taking a physical... Did you say in anticipation? Yeah. So um, I want to make sure you said, I mean, that word anticipation is, first of all, really interesting to me. And I love where you're going. (laughs) Keep going, keep going. So... um, so, yeah, so I don't, it's not necessarily super important to me in terms of how I solve the problem, um, what the actual amplitude of force reaching the tissue is, but it has to do with the relative amounts of acceleration from bone to bone. I want to see that on that weight shift, the tibia is rotating at a slightly faster rate than the femur. And as long as that's true, then I know that force, that the torque force being absorbed is, is traveling in the correct direction and eventually reaching the spine or reaching the center of mass um, uh, in something that can be useful as propulsion. But if the body starts getting ahead of itself and anticipating with tissues that are compensatory, then you have force moving the wrong direction. And that's where we start seeing a lot of joint dysfunction. I had never thought about that, at least not from this perspective, because, 
we talk about, you know, pre-activating the nervous system. We talk about anticipating ground reaction forces. But I had never thought of it in terms of anticipated compensations, like a compensation they actually anticipate, which is very cool, very interesting. Not a good yeah. thing to have, but it's an interesting way to look at it. Well, you know, um, I work with a lot of people who have, in, in some cases, bizarre compensations and severe compensations. Uh, and when I'm approaching a client who has been living with chronic pain for a long time or who has some kind of debilitating skeletal disorder or, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of really interesting stories there, but uh, when I'm approaching that client, I can't approach them from the perspective of, you know, your body has failed because that's demoralizing. And especially if it's a person where, for whatever reason, they're never going to be at what we might call optimal, well, I'll use a different word. They're never going to be what we call, like, perfect function. We can optimize, but we can never actually get past whatever dysfunction they've got because it's, you know, like a deformity or a prosthesis or whatever. You know, I, I can't go in with their with their sense of their body as being broken. And so the way that I choose to think about compensations is that the body is anticipating instability and responding in the best way it knows how. And a compensation can keep you moving. A compensation works in the strictest sense of the word in that the alternative may be worse. But we're always looking to see how much of that kind of original function, that standard SOP um, for, for how force is supposed to move through the skeleton. But it's not, you know, a compensation isn't a failure. A compensation is a very specific kind of tool. Yeah, that's really cool. I, you know, it totally makes sense. But the way you're describing it is uh, causing a paradigm shift for me. It's like, okay, I just hadn't thought about it from that a that angle before. Like, I love this. This is really exciting for me, too. Because <laughs> I'm also well, you know, fascinated I with gait and loading energy forces and unloading. Like, this whole thing, when I watch people, I watch their gait pattern, uh, I mean, I do it even when it's not a client. I can't help it. I'll just be walking around and walking behind somebody, and I see them, and I'm looking, and I say, oh, my gosh, I know some things I can do to help them. Yep. So now, now <laughs> looking at it even more in detail. Interesting. Yeah. And there's a lot of these. You know, um, so I mentioned a second ago how uh, I'm, I'm always kind of uh, I'm tickled by the way that this – initial impact force, which is moving in a certain linear direction, the body transforms that force into torque via its first impact point with the calcaneus. Because once you have torque, torque is interesting, right? Because if we are looking for how to transfer the most amount of force most efficiently from point to point, a coil or a spring is absolutely the best way to do that. You know, if I if I use uh, you know if I'm thinking of some kind of a machine for throwing a a, a rock like a catapult, I, you know, some very long lever with a very kind of elastic response, you know, some big uh, long chunk of metal or wood that I can bend back to then release and throw energy, yeah, that works, but it takes an enormous amount of space. But we can take the same amount of material 
and we can turn it into a coil and suddenly transfer a lot of energy very, very efficiently. And so when I'm looking at the way force is moving through the body, and again, uh, you know, I, I love um, I love Dr. Perry Nicholson's approach for the same reason. Transverse plane, man, is everything because that's where the vast majority of all the force is moving. It's, it's just the most efficient. You know, I mean, like the whole geometry of the skeleton is designed to carry force uh, in coils from joint to joint. And then if I can add one more thing to that, for that to work, both the two ends of the joint need to be able to resist each other, right? If I grab two ends of a spring and I turn both of those ends the same direction, the spring doesn't do anything besides spin. But if I grab two ends of a spring and I pull them different directions, suddenly my spring starts to coil. And if it coils, that means it can release. And so another one of those qualitative measurements I'm constantly looking at is at every joint level, in particular a joint level that's, that is painful or kind of clearly dysfunctional through observation, uh, I'm looking to see are both ends of the joint counter-twisting or are they twisting the same direction? And for me, that's a major sign that something is wrong if it's twisting the same direction. So would that be part of your quantitative assessment? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's say you put the uh, dominant foot forward and just do a wage shift between front and back. That's something mm -hmm. you might observe. Yeah, so like a good example there would be in the hip. So if I've got the dominant foot forward and we're and I'm asking the client to load weight forward onto that foot, I know that one of the things I'm gonna need is for the glute or the deep six lateral rotators to engage eccentrically. And that can't happen unless the pelvis and the femur are rotating counter to each other. So as I watch them shift their weight to their front foot, if I see that the femur is internally rotating and the pelvis is also turning to the left, that tells me that we have no elastic energy storage in the uh, transverse posterior tissues of the pelvis. And so it's it's a very at that point it's a very simple observation, right? You, you can see it. It doesn't take a genius to be able to see are those two bones rotating the same direction or are they rotating counter to each other? And it's in like that one piece of information is incredibly powerful, and it also informs my corrective because now if the person's dumping weight into their front leg, I either a need to show them how to resist via external rotation of the femur. Or I can also take the other entrance point and teach them how to rotate the pelvis to the right, counter to the femur. And this is another kind of strength of this method, that from, from a physics perspective, you know, origin and insertion, uh, or top to bottom, don't make any difference, right? It's just, it's just about a direction of force. And I can manipulate the direction of force just by changing which bone in the series is rotating faster than the other. So I always have a back door into every, into every problem. I don't always have to flow in one direction. So I have a question. This is just reminding yeah. me of some uh, Thomas Myers I was just listening to a lot this month. There's this one interview on YouTube with him that I extracted the audio. When I go running, I listen to this interview all the time. <laughs> so... That's what I do. I listen to things like 20 times and internalize the best I can, and then I start to get it. It's a good method. That's a good method. I think about um, origin and insertion as being uh, 
basically irrelevant, if I remember what he was saying, because kind of like what you were saying, he put it more in the terms of uh, uh, fascial lines, like we talk about torque, power, propulsion, uh, internal, external rotation. Um, I'm thinking spiral line, where our, mm -hmm. uh, our force comes out. A spiral line is... Do our spiral lines follow these joint impairments or joint dysfunctions? I should say. Would would that be part of the cause of it? Is fascial uh, something not linked right in the fascia, fascia where we're not firing optimally? Well, so actually, Dr. Emily talks about this a lot too. This idea of fascial tensioning, and um, yes. I think that her. Um, her focus on fossil tensioning, I think, is very clever because, again, I was talking you know, before the interview. You and I were talking about how uh, one of the cool things about our industry is that people there are so many different solutions to solving the same problems. People get to bring their own individual creativity to it, and I feel like fossil tensioning is a great example. Fossil tensioning is is more or less just a different way of describing exactly what we're talking about here with counter rotating joints. Because when you see counter-rotation, then that's one of the things that allows the fossil tension to carry from joint to joint. Right? If, a, if, a, if, a, if two, bones, two bones on either end of a joint both rotate the same way, the fascia goes soft. But if they counter-rotate, you maintain just enough elasticity that you get that vibrational uh, transfer more efficiently. So uh, yes, absolutely. You know, the, these counter rotations are necessary for a transfer of force through fascia as well as muscle. Right. Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking that correlation because we've been. Uh, she sent out videos to the master instructors recently because we have an, uh, a weekend this coming weekend coming up with uh, two full days of master instructor instructor camp with instructors from all over the globe where we're bringing new information into the program that we teach. And, of course, she's introducing level three of barefoot training, mm -hmm. which is really um, lots and lots of fascial stuff, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. excited about all this information. And, and as you're talking about the spring, the turning of the spring, either are they going the same direction or is it opposite, how it relates mm -hmm. to uh, bones, I started thinking fashion because it all makes sense. It all runs parallel idea. Yep. Yep. Powerful stuff. And, and actually, uh, and I'm very excited to announce, by the way, that uh, I'm actually currently in the process of putting together a kind of my first level one uh, certification course for this methodology. Uh, so, yeah, and not, and not too long from now, uh, there will be some materials available for the assessment process that I've been describing uh, for other, other trainers to use. And so I, I hope to have that off the ground, uh, you know, about mid-year 2016. That's great, man. We'll definitely keep us posted on that because I, I know I'm going to want to know about that stuff. That's cool. So um, let me just, just reviewing some notes here. This is so fascinating. I um, Actually, I'm just going to go off for a minute, and I know we have a lot of trainers who watch this uh, series, which I appreciate very much. And, uh, of course, as you all know, I'm always here to try to bring good information, good quality information, stuff that makes a difference for anyone in the movement, fitness industry, uh, and for their clients. 
Uh, but the one thing I'll say is I wish that more people in the fitness, you know, trainer industry especially would listen to and take this approach and investigate and, and learn because what we can bring to our clients as a result is just there's actually no comparison to your standard training, you know. And a lot of that yeah. all starts with the assessments. We need to know what to assess, how to assess, how to measure and use the data to do the right programming for the respective client. And, what you're sharing, and that's one of the things. What you're sharing is so powerful. It's just another fantastic piece of this uh, movement, as Tom Myers calls it, the movement tree. You know, it's the movement mm. plant growing out of the ground where all these different modalities, modalities and different things are growing that are merging together and overlap, which is kind of what we talked about earlier, too. And I love what yeah. you And, you know, one of, the, one of the primary goals of the method when I first started it and really of, of my of the reembody brand in general is that I don't want regular people to always have to rely on specialists for their movement health and I would like to see uh, the these assessment and corrective process be more available to regular people and one of the things that was very important to me was that what I was doing, you know, first of all, had to work, and it had to work quickly. <laughs> um, but that I had to, that that people who did not have, you know, a, back, a clinical background or did not have a background in hard sciences would be able to understand what was being done and why it was being done, and most importantly, do it themselves. And it's one of the things I feel like is going really well so far with the methodology. Is as I mentioned before. Um, you know, it's the observations that I'm trying to prime people for are very easy to make. And it doesn't even require that you even know the names of the tissue. You know, you don't have to know that it's called a tibia and a femur. You don't have to know any of the muscle names. All you have to be able to see is do these things with each other and which one turn for, turns first. And if you can if you can look closely enough to observe that, then you can make you can make intelligent corrective decisions. They can have a profound impact on the way somebody is moving, and um, I, I think it's really important that we that we make that kind of power available to people that may not have access to the same kind of time or uh, level of education that we have. You know that we're lucky enough to have. Um, you know, there's you know, we, we need troops in the ground who can do this right away. You know, and and be able to count on the results, and that's one of the things that's been important to me from the very beginning. Everyone needs to be able to do it. I'm glad you think like that, uh, and I have that approach because I I agree. I mean, we we need troops on the ground is a good way to put it. Yeah, like and, you know, I think that yeah, something easy to understand. Yeah. People can just look, and they can you know not have to go take a course on it or anything like that, but just look and see it, understand it, and then get data and apply it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like one of the one of the benefits of the physics model versus the the clinical or the biological model is that the the buy in for what you have to know in order to make 
positive correction is a little bit lower. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that there's not a place for, I mean, obviously we need the other component too. Uh, and the two are compatible at every step of the way. Uh, you know, but I would, I would like this tool to be available to people in, in addition to what kind of clinical biological education that's also available. Excellent. So with that in mind, let me uh, ask you, will that information be available on your website when it's, when it's out there? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've been... I'll put a link on the screen here. And for the audio podcast, though, what is your website address so people can hear that? Uh, it's uh, reembody.me. That's R-E-E-M-B-O-D-Y dot me, M-E. And, uh, yeah, on the page I've got tons of articles um, kind of all geeking out about the cool physics stuff the body can do. Uh, and then some, you know, some practical advice, you know, my own particular ilk. Um, I've got several videos on there. Uh, you know, for the for a long time, I'm, I'm a lot better. I'm a lot better writer than I am um, a videographer. So <laughs> um, the videos that I have are relatively low production quality, and I don't have a ton of them. Uh, but the information is powerful, and uh, and there's a lot of written stuff there that I think will also could also be useful to people. In addition. My schedule of workshops and lectures all over the world has been increasing steadily, and so if people are interested in knowing where I'll be presenting next, uh, I always have that information current on my site. Um, uh, and then also there's a place for, you know, if, if, if a venue anywhere in the world would like to explore some of this stuff at their location, you know, I can also take requests for workshops and stuff like that on the site as well. Oh, that's great. And I have to say, um, I've been to your site, and I've watched, I think I've watched all the videos. I'm not sure, but there's some great stuff, great stuff. So I would advise anyone and everyone, go to reembody.me, and the link will be on the screen, R-E-E-M-E-O-D-Y dot M-E. Check it out. It's, it's, there's, there is, their information is super powerful. So it's a great resource. Yeah, yeah to this day... The uh, the most because the, I think it might have been the first video I ever uploaded to the site actually, but it's um, it's a super low production quality uh, video, just a single shot on an old iPad propped up against a wall, uh, showing a, a little trick for how to rotate the fingers and wrists so as to better absorb impact during weight bearing to kind of relieve some of this omnipresent wrist pain that seems to be plaguing a lot of people. And to this day, that video is the most popular thing on my site, article or video. And it always cracks me up because it's this crappy little video. <laughs> but, but, but it's been, it's been useful and people have been getting a lot of use out of that, that piece of information. And it, it really makes me so excited to know that, that, uh, it's helped people. Yeah, that's great. I can tell you back. When I first started doing these interviews, uh, and a lot of times I'll be in a live setting with the person. Um, you know, mine were really low quality, <laughs> but some of them have a lot of hits. So it gets what yeah. pleases me is to know that people are hitting those and they're taking. Uh, evidently, the information is worth their while because uh, the numbers go up. So it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, and there's, there's uh, is there any 
let me ask you this, because I'm in no hurry here. I have a lot of time. Um, anything else you'd like to share? Any other information? Well, ideas? There is, there is one other principle that I think is very important as we're assessing movement. Um, and it's kind of, it's more of a, I mean, there is definitely a, a kind of a diagnostic element to this, but it also is kind of a philosophy, you might say. Uh, and that is the idea that we get used to thinking of gravity uh, as being a drag, right? Gravity is something that we fight in order to move. And I feel like this misses some of the uh, ingenious design relative to our skeleton, that, that rather than fighting gravity or thinking of ourselves as fighting gravity as we walk, we're really utilizing gravity as a form of fuel, you know, gravity, gravity is a free force. It is always moving at 9.8 meters per second squared, and it's always moving in the same direction. It's always going to be there. And so the, the evolution of the human skeleton, well, really of all, of all skeletons, period, um, uh, is such that why would, you, why would you evolve in the presence of this free force and fight it? And I think that if we really look at things like gait, uh, or really, you know, all human movement, but Gates kind of the most classical human movement you can think of. Um, we're really amazing at being able to take this force, which is constantly dragging downward, and turn this downward drag into something that we can use to go forward. <coughs> and so, I would encourage people, as they are looking at gait dysfunction and movement dysfunction, to try to think of gravity pulling on you as being a method of helping you out, right? How is, I want, I want people to see that, that downward pull as a method of going forward rather than something that you have to resist, that you have to fight in order to go forward. You know, I, one of the things I often say to my, to my in particular, clients who, uh, who have been in chronic pain for a long time because they're really used to kind of bracing against every potential movement, in particular falling, uh, one of the things I'm frequently cueing them to try to do is find the thing that you can let go of. And by let go, I mean let it fall. Right? In any movement, whenever something's going up, that means something's going down. Whenever something's going forward, something's going backwards. And I'm always encouraging those people to look for what's falling. What can you let fall? Because when you find that thing, the thing that's falling is going to help drive power into the thing that you're trying to lift. Do you follow what I mean? Yeah, totally. I love that. I love that. But I found that it, it can reduce a little bit of the anxiety associated with having to develop muscular strength when we keep in mind the idea that gravity is helping you out. <laughs> you know, it's your ally rather than, than uh, you know, dragging on your ability. You know, I, I might be off base on this, but I don't think so. When I look at some of the uh, the concept behind parkour, let's say, and how they're moving mm -hmm. around, um, and they're they're utilizing gravity. They're utilizing utilizing energy forces. Um, Absolutely. In fact, when I was uh, this past year, so in 2015, because my favorite thing to do of all exercises, period, is run. And I love running. It's kind of a zen thing for me. Um, I'm not fast. I'll never be fast. <laughs> but I'm getting better at being more efficient with it. So 
I still want to get the benefits of a good run, workout. Uh, I want to feel certain things, so I decided to uh, run trails. And Mm -hmm. where I live, we have a lot of hills, a lot of big hills. We have trails with big Mm -hmm. hills. Of course, we run into the problem of the uneven surfaces and all the tree roots and all these different things, so the probability for risk is much higher than running on a track or wherever. Sure. Um, So just being mindful of that. I got addicted to trail running this year. I went trail running as much as I possibly could instead of road running or whatever. And um, I started thinking about energy differently. Of course, some of that came from going through a lot of ducks, studying a lot of Dr. Emily's um, uh, teachings and, um, and using energy forces, how we absorb, how we load, store for a millisecond and unload. But getting into allowing myself to use the ground to propel me forward. And Mm -hmm. I never really, I didn't get into details like, um, I didn't think of what you had just said a minute ago. If if you can let one thing fall, it will drive energy to the other thing, right? But, But it was the beginning of a concept that a little bit of the parkour came into it, too, just a real basic philosophy of let's use the ground to our advantage. I wasn't actually thinking gravity. I was thinking ground. But now I'm going to think about gravity. I'm going to think about where yeah. that fall because I can only uh, predict that I'll probably be a little bit more efficient when I do that. So I can't you know, um, get on trails again, but it's, there's like 18 inches of snow here right now, so it'll be a while. <laughs> <laughs> now is not a good time, probably. No, no. Um, uh, at the last Barefoot conference, or the, the very first Barefoot conference in Delhi, um, I was a co-presenter along with uh, well, lots of other folks, but one of them was Dan Edwards, uh, who is the yeah he heads up uh, Parkour Generations, and. Uh, Really cool guy, really great athlete, um, and uh, through watching him, he was actually, that was the closest contact that I did, I'd had at that point with a person, with a, with a kind of a parkour expert, and I was, of course, you know, basically aware of parkour, but I didn't know much about it in, in you know, in close contact. And hanging out with Dan, uh, he's a really inspiring figure, uh, and I really love the work that he does. And I absolutely agree that parkour is a great example of seeing what you can let fall, of not of not fighting the forces that are acting on you, but going with them, right? And learning to improvise in the presence of violent forces acting on your body, and and not. Not being afraid of that, but just going where it takes you, because that's really what your skeleton's good at. You know, there's a, there's a geometry at work here, which which is which is aching to absorb and release force if you let it. And I think a lot of uh, actually running in particular, uh, I, I think a lot of running coaching can sometimes get overly focused on the resistance on the endurance when a little bit of letting go can actually go a long way. Yeah. You know, I used to work with a guy uh, in Hong Kong who was a, a ultra runner. Ultra running is very popular in Hong Kong. Um, and he came to me originally because he had a lot of back pain, like upper thoracic, lower cervical um, 
uh, pain when he ran. And it was really concerning him because he had some big races coming up. He had a lot of anxiety about it. And we had one session. <laughs> and I remember you know, doing my initial assessment and watching him do a little bit of running. And the guy was holding himself absolutely bolt upright. Right, He was, was lifting the shoulders up and back in an effort to remain as tall as possible because he'd always been told, run tall, run tall. And so... You know, it, it took maybe a couple of minutes where I, I put a little pressure on the medial border of his scapula. I encouraged him to let the scapula protract just a little, allow himself just to sink into a little bit of thoracic flexion, nothing major, just enough to feel like you dropped your weight down a little bit. And that was all it took. That was all it took. He didn't have, he didn't have to do anything. He just had to stop doing something that he'd been doing and it and it all had to do with letting something fall. He was driving his gait essentially from this very strong, mind you, uh contraction of his deep hip flexors and abdominal wall. Whereas if he just drops his sternum a few centimeters, suddenly the natural inertia associated with his upper body falling drives the whole process. And it's just that simple. It was amazing how simple it was. <laughs> My, I, I think you just helped me with an issue that I run into once in a while, and that has to do with uh, going off track here a little bit. But after 30 years as a drummer, um, mm. like this, and I'm kind of in this, you know, this um, flexion forward a little bit. A lot of things are forward, and I mm-hmm. very often had this area where you described in the thoracic area of some pain. So when I rant, when I run, there are times where I, I'm doing the same thing. I'm trying to be more upright because I'm thinking about counteracting the forward tendencies I have. And maybe sure. I'm trying to just let that fall a little bit. You know, it really doesn't well, tell you what, if I'm less than five miles, I don't feel it. But if I'm out for like 10, 12, 13 miles, um, then I notice that area hurting. So this is something I'm going to mm. talk about. Well, you know, um, this is another thing that I see come up frequently. And, and speaking of my diagnostic process and the idea of relative acceleration, uh, the, the tendency for a lot of us to be forward, shoulder forward, head forward, all that kind of thoracic curvature, whatever, we see that all the time. And tons of functional fitness cueing has to do with how do we take people that sit in chairs frequently and get them to be able to open up their shoulder girdle, right? Uh, I actually have a totally different way of addressing that problem. Because <laughs> for me, um, I very strongly separate the function of the thoracic spine from the function of the shoulder girdle. And when when I see somebody with a lot of forward tendency, one of the first things I want to know is, is that forward tendency really coming from the spine, or is it actually coming from the glenohumeral joint, or is it actually coming from the collarbone, or is it actually coming from the skull or the cervical, because those things are different. And, I mean, it's obvious to say it out loud, but, but a lot of corrective exercise treats those areas like they all move the same way. And in particular, I find that there's a really cool counter-rotation that takes place between the thoracic spine and the shoulder girdle. So, for instance, um, 
in my experience, people have a much harder time rotating their thoracic spine toward their dominant hand. I'm sorry, toward their non-dominant hand. Right? So if my dominant hand is my right, my non-dominant is my left, my thoracic spine has an easier time turning to the right than it does to the left. And I'm talking like actual thoracic rotation, so at, at the vertebral level. And so if I've assessed someone and I find that that is true, and I see that they have a forward tendency in their shoulders, um, rather than going straight to the spine, I'm going to start looking at how can we get the specific shoulder girdle to rotate, and in particular, maybe even just one side. Maybe the only side that's actually forward is the right, but because of the way it throws off the whole system, it makes it look like the whole thing is forward, you know, that those dysfunctions can hide. Um, but, yeah, but I, I, I need to be able to see the difference between these structures that appear to move as though they are the same. You follow what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. So do you have, let me ask you this. Do you find a general or a common tendency for the, let's say, one shoulder to be more forward? And would it go along with the, would it be the dominant side shoulder or the non-dominant side shoulder that tends to be forward more? Oh, it's, uh, first of all, this is among the most universal things that I see in people. The dominant shoulder tends to be protracted and internally rotated. The non-dominant shoulder is exactly the opposite, but it hides. It's really sneaky. The non-dominant shoulder likes to be stable in a retracted, externally rotated position. And speaking of counter-rotations, it hides it in the elbow. So if, if the non-dominant shoulder is back it is being stabilized in a backward direction through retraction and external rotation. The forearm will much more heavily rotate in the internal direction in an effort to try to keep carrying force through the hand. Okay. But there's diminishing returns on that, right? I mean, like, you can't, you can't keep tightening the coil. Eventually, you have to release something. But the tighter it coils, that whole structure begins to then pull on the spine. But... This is what, exactly what I mean, because in those instances, we're not seeing a protracted shoulder, but it looks like one. What we're seeing is a retracted shoulder, which is actually dragging the thoracic vertebra into um, rotation to the right. Okay. And by the way, so that system I just described right there, I see that every day. I see that every day. It's one of the most common dysfunctions I treat. Wow, that's really interesting. I can actually see where that can cause various issues. It would seem to me that maybe the thoracic area could be not feeling all that good because you're, you're shifted. That's really interesting, Kevin. I appreciate you sharing that. It gives me a new... Uh, Absolutely. I have clients later today, and I'm going to be looking a little bit differently. This is really cool. Really cool. Yeah, I'll bet, I'll bet $5 right now you're going to see a client today whose, whose left shoulder is, in fact, stabilizing an external rotation, but it's, it looks like it's an internal rotation. Let me see. <laughs> clients later. Both of my clients are right-handed, so I would say you're correct. I'll report back. <laughs> yeah, I, I, look, I look forward to hearing back about that. 
Yeah. I, maybe I'm iron bowing you five bucks. We'll see. But one of them is a trainer too, so she'll find it interesting too. She'll find it interesting. When um, when my when I release the my level one materials, uh, a ma- one of the big chapters, one of the major kind of diagnostic principles is that the left and right side uh, must be treated differently. That there's a there's a there's a specialization of function between the right and the left side that I have found to be extremely predictable. Uh, and so, yeah, that's been that's been really really useful. Sorry, go ahead. I keep interrupting. I'm really sorry. I don't mean to be rude. I just, <laughs> that's I just okay. find it and I think of things. It's like, oh, I want to talk, ask questions. No, that's interesting. But treating, this is something I really didn't get into until about a year and a half, two years ago, is the idea of, of treating one side different than the other. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, well, I mean, I, I, there, there were times, though, in the beginning, because of the uh, model of training that I've used, NASM, you know, their assessments and all that. So there were certain individual things. But I'm realizing how different, or I'm starting to realize more how differently each side can be than the other. I mean, one of the things yeah. is when we do the feet assessments, uh, ankle range of motion, subtalar joint, and all those things, Dr. Emily, um, you know, clearly one side can be completely different than the other, so the programming would be different. Um, yeah, you're taking you're taking this up, and right now I'm I'm fascinated by all of this. But because of me personally, I'm fascinated with me. What I'm going to do? Can't be blamed, you know. What if I can assess myself? Because I actually do think that I'm probably hiding it in the elbow on the left side with exactly what you described. And I need to drop a little. Well, bit. you wouldn't be the first one. I need to drop a little bit when I run. I think just a few centimeters is going to make a world of difference in how I feel after 10 miles, you know. You know, and since we're on the subject, there, there's there's one more very common incarnation of this that I'll mention. Because, um, you know, I think for, for all of us who hang out around and work with Dr. Emily, I think we all have, you know, a minor obsession with foot function. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's, that's us, right? But uh, I think another one of those very sneaky dysfunctions is uh, flat-footedness. Because I have found, in my experience, uh, a relatively large number of flat-footed, or people that present as flat-footed, but upon closer examination... They are flat-footed. They're a very specific kind of flat-footed that comes from the forefoot much, much more than it comes from the rear foot. And what I mean by that is that uh, I would say roughly half of the people that I have that that I I treat for flat-footed related disorders uh, are still what I would call inverted foot types, but only on their dominant side. So the dominant foot okay, let me, can let me back up for one second, just so I make sure I'm with you on this. So what mm-hmm. you find in about half of your people, are you saying in about half of the people, you're finding this particular type of flat-footedness? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then yeah, that, that... At the same time, is there also an inverted foot type? 
I guess what, let, me, let me back up a little bit. I guess what I'm saying is a person can present with flat feet, but still have a calcaneus which is dysfunctional in that it is overly inverted or that it prefers the inverted position or is stuck in an inverted position, but they can still present as being flat-footed. Really? Wow. Yeah, and um, as a matter of fact, you, you talk about being being interested in you. I am one of those type of people, uh, and it was funny. I had to treat a lot of people for this problem before it ever occurred to me that that's what was going on with me. <laughs> um, but but uh, but yeah, as a matter of fact, I remember again at the, at the Delhi conference, the last of the conference, there was one of the one of the women who was in attendance had. Probably the most aggressive, um, rigid, flat foot type uh, I had ever seen. I mean, I'm sure Dr. Emily's seen worse, but for me, it was intense. I mean, she had the the so the plantar aspect of her foot was a board; it didn't move at all. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, but it was incredibly flat, and and so you know, in a attempt to apply some of the traditional uh, coursework for correcting flat feet to her just bounced right off of that dysfunction. So a little bit later on, um, I was working with her a little bit, and it was, I mean, hers is a very complicated case, and so we couldn't make a ton of headway, but we got some very promising initial results when I treated her like a person who was excessively inverted on the dominant foot, rather than treating her like somebody who was excessively everted. And, uh, you know, and I found that a lot of that rigidity we were seeing, and again, her case is a more extreme version of something that I see all the time, that flat-footedness was coming from an excessive rotation through the forefoot. So, you know, so much rotation through the forefoot that it was actually overtaking the calcaneus into flat-footedness, and the calcaneus was still inverted relative to the tibia. Okay. That's really interesting because my first... Um reaction to that when you first mention a rigid flat foot is that rigid and everted foot type don't fit in the same sentence together except they do how you describe this I mean that's like that's pretty interesting so the ro rotation if you have a calcaneal inversion happening then at the forefoot mm -hmm. we're having the opposite yeah so if you've got an inverted uh, calcaneus, and it is it is you know, it favors inversion or lax eversion, however you want to describe it, because um, the foot has a counter rotation too, right? If we break the foot roughly into forefoot and rear foot, the forefoot and rear foot also counter each other during gait, right? So during you know from initial contact to um, to um, single support, we're seeing the calcaneus going through a process of continual eversion while the forefoot is going through a relative supination. And the combination of those two things causes the arch to be able to spread out and absorb force, right? So in the dominant foot, what can happen is that rather than hitting the ground in inversion and then kind of agreeing to travel into eversion, we can have the foot hits the ground and the forefoot really, really quickly, so more quickly than the calcaneus everts, the forefoot pronates so that the big toe hits the ground much too early. Oh. And 
You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I totally do. And and where the flat-footed element of that can come in, and this to me, again, I find very interesting, is we have an impact force, you know, again, gravitational constant plus inertia, we have an impact force still moving in the same direction. But the foot is now no longer in a geometry that will allow it to absorb that force in the direction it is intended. So a different bone or a different joint is going to have to move in the direction that that force is pointing. Right, so this again, we're, we're, we're looking at that, assessing this not from a tissue perspective, but from a physics perspective. So I've got a force which is moving up and slightly medial. That force has hit the foot at a, at a poor geometry because the foot pronated too early and it doesn't have any room to internally rotate the tibia. So what happens is the femur absorbs the direction of that force internally rotates and adducts massively, and as that happens, the movement of the femur inward drags the whole sole of the foot down into the floor. So we took a foot which was trying to have an arch, mm -hmm. but because the whole leg had to displace as a result of the direction of impact force, we ended up getting contact between the sole of the foot and the floor. But it's not very efficient. And over time, over thousands and thousands of steps, it breaks down the stability, and you end up looking at a flat foot. But it's not flat in the way that we typically think of being flat. I see, I see. Wow, that's super fascinating. This actually might explain some issues that I see out there that don't get corrected um, the way I would like when I work on this. So now my next question, I'm going into the push-off phase I'm just speculating yeah. here, trying to think through this, that their push-off is going to be inefficient. So how is the propulsion on a person like this? Well, when we move through into push-off, let's put it this way. So um, during, you know, from initial contact to single support, that's when we're storing up energy. Uh, and then after the center of mass passes over kind of that critical threshold, the leg starts to unload all that energy into the pelvis as rotation and forward momentum. But, you know, as you stated earlier, a certain amount of external rotation uh, is necessary for the force generated in the leg to pass through the glute and into the spine. But in the situation I've just described where the way the body gets the plantar aspect of the foot onto the floor is by strongly deviating the femur into adduction and internal rotation. Right? Can you picture that? Right, yep. It means that as the center of mass is trying to pass forward relative to the foot, right? So the foot is stuck and the center of mass is trying to pass forward relative to the foot on the floor, but there's no way that the planted foot is going to be able to go into enough extension or external rotation because it has spent far too long in internal rotation from the get-go. So we wound that coil up way too tight at the onset, meaning that there isn't enough time from the point that center of mass travels forward, there isn't enough time to get all the external rotation we need to unload that force. Okay. I'm with you. So... You follow me? So what ends up happening is rather than absorbing and releasing, 
you absorb some, <laughs> and it moves inefficiently, and then rather than releasing something you've absorbed, you end up having to contract, you have to, to, to expend caloric energy, muscular caloric energy, rather than conducting gravitational acceleration. Wow. So it seems like this would be a real effort for these people to move, and efficiency's out the window, and... Maybe they just get tired. <laughs> because yeah. like, well, you know, um, this is like sounds like they're fighting the forces because of their uh, their issues. There, there is another. Keep going with this. I do have a specific question I want to ask in relation to this type of foot, but keep going. Hmm. Well. Um, what I was going to say was that you know, the, the, the body is a pretty amazing structure, and like I was saying, compensations often happen for a reason, and they happen because they're better than something else that the body's in some kind of danger of. It's a response to some kind of insecurity. And there's a lot of redundancy in the way that we move ourselves forward, right? So like I was saying, you know, best possible case, we absorb gravitational acceleration, store it as potential energy, uh, conducted through the bones and the ligaments as well as storing in the muscles and we move beautifully, yay, everyone's happy. But if there's a loss of that conductivity, we can frequently make up the difference by just burning caloric energy and contracting muscles kind of off sequence. Yes, very inefficient, and yes, can lead to lots of dysfunction, but like it works. <laughs> you know, it gets the job done if it has to. You know, um, um, I mean, it's, it's what we're trying to correct, but but I, I think it deserves noting that the body, it's really amazing how the body tries to make the best of whatever situation it happens to be in. Yeah, it is interesting. It is pretty phenomenal. So I'd like to ask you this. I'm curious because of my gait obsession and foot obsession. Mm -hmm. Regarding the big toe... Big toe yeah. mojo, as Dr. Perry calls it. Do you find yep. any correlation with this particular foot type you're talking about? So the one that's actually inverted but presents flat. Do you find mm -hmm. any correlation with lack of big toe mobility or first ray mobility, able to get over that big toe? Is there any compromise or any compensation in the big toe area? Oh, I mean, I think it's pretty, it's pretty classical. I mean, it's among the first things I remember ever learning from Dr. Emily back in the day. Um, uh, you know, the classical compensation of rolling around, uh, around the medial edge of the MPJ rather than flexing over the top of it. But this person would be kind of a, a really exaggerated version of that because they're already predisposed to so much femoral internal rotation. Right. So the again, the, the only way they could get the plantar aspect of their foot against the ground at all is to deviate the femur so far medially that um, the at that point the direction of the center of mass moving forward now no longer corresponds to the direction of friction of being applied to the toes. So again, here we have another couple of forces that we can think of. When I when just just your normal gait, if you can picture in your mind for a moment walking straight forward, and you've got your front foot planted on the floor, your center of mass is moving forward at a certain rate. You know, has a certain amount of momentum, 
And the if you imagine walking on ice, for instance, and feeling what it's like when you walk on ice and it's unstable, and as you get ready to take a step, that thing that you're afraid your foot is going to do when it slips out from under you, when there is no ice, friction, there's a force of friction being applied in the opposite direction. So you have a center of mass going one direction, and you have friction pulling another direction. It's not quite the opposite, but the resulting vector between forward momentum and friction on the great toe, the resulting vector describes the geometry of the MPJ very exactly. So if we find that the the big toe is stuck to the floor via a, a different operation, so like I was saying to this person, where the femur caves in and that's why the big toe is on the floor, then the combined vector of the center of mass and friction of the toe no longer accurately describes the geometry of the toe. And so the toe has to compensate. Okay, yeah, it would seem... And so you'll, I had to ask you that because it just seems like it would have to. It would have to compensate. Man. Yeah, and again, I, but I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to see the compensation as the competition of vector forces rather than... Uh, a behavior of tissues. Obviously, both things are happening. But um, um, I think it's good for us to be able to see it from both perspectives. I was just thinking as you're describing that, um, you're, as you're describing that, I'm thinking about how many times I'm going to re-watch this video so that I can take notes and learn Yeah, I get to edit all this stuff because it's my podcast. It's my channel, right? So I'm really lucky. I get to go through and edit, and, of course, nothing gets cut out. It's just a matter of trimming the beginning and the end and putting in a few links on the screen. But I get to see it all, and um, it's... Totally fascinating. You made my day. You made my week. This is amazing information. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. I, you know, I, I think as I think it's probably clear. I get really excited about it too. You know, there's this is this is the coolest this is the coolest job. You know, it's the coolest job, and um, and it is. You know, it's it, it's something about there's this fun kind of academic exploration we get to do, but we also get to help people at the same time, which is immensely rewarding. And I think it shouldn't be overlooked that that this isn't like this isn't fixing something that belongs to someone else. This is you know, we all have one of these. We all have a body. And so everything that we end up learning and discovering, not only does it apply to other people, it applies to ourselves. And um, there's something very binding about that. Yeah, there's something very um, equalizing, you know. That that at least you know. I, I am always more I'm always more impressed by how alike everybody I see is than than how different. And yeah, there's there's something kind of uh, exciting about that too. I think yeah, I agree 100%. I feel the same way, and I think. Um, what I've realized, especially the more I get into it, and also getting into the education side, you know, doing teaching workshops for uh, EBFA. So you have the client base, and then I have the, the trainers who I get to teach, which is so rewarding. But I think what's really cool is because, like you say, we all have one of these. We all have a body, a skeleton. 
um, we can relate. So the wow factors come off. Yes. It's like, oh my God. Yes. My God, what's happening to me in this whole interview is these these wow factors. And so that gets me really excited because now I can digest this, think about it more, learn it, internalize it, and then share. Because there are a lot of people out there who are, they're starving for this information. Mm-hmm. They don't know where to get it. And when we come to to them with it, um, it helps them. So it's rewarding for us. I'm always trying to learn, trying to help people. It's really powerful. It's great stuff. That's why. That's why well, I'm really about it too. Because it's just to me, it's, it is the coolest thing in the world is to be able to do this stuff, learn about it, and actually actually take it and apply it, teach it, and have others apply it. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, you've 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 obviously um, collected together a lot of people who all feel the same way. And so you know you're. You know what you're doing by pulling everyone together is a, a really valuable service. Well, it's partially self-indulgent. <laughs> you know, hey, those two things—those two things are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm self-indulgent in my need for learning, um, but when it comes right down to it, it really has nothing to do with me at all. I just facilitate. I've been lucky to. Have you joined me uh, in so many great, you know, inspirational, knowledgeable, amazing people? We put it all together and we get all this. It's like Dr. Perry says, bringing candy and knowledge bombs going off everywhere, you know? Yep. <laughs> I love that guy. I want to uh, just repeat here before we, before we sign off. Um, re-embody me. Dot me, R-E-E-M-B-O-D-Y dot M-E. That is your website. And mm-hmm. on there, there's a lot of great stuff. And I know you'll keep us posted when your material comes out. Maybe that would be... Absolutely. Uh, to do another interview to talk about that, too. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So I really appreciate you joining me. Any... any uh, Final things, thoughts you want to share with people before we sign off? Um, well, I think I, I just like to say, um, and just kind of on a practical side, just let people know that uh, I got a couple of events coming up. So for people in the Seattle, Washington area, um, I'm doing a workshop for seniors um, for a senior postural development um, on February 21st uh, in Seattle, Washington. Uh, and then I'm doing a workshop for kind of parkour and other elite athletes in Emeryville, California, on um, March the 15th. Okay. And then I'm doing a kind of functional fitness, uh, pain-free gym exercise, like squats, lunges, presses workshop in Seattle, Washington on uh, uh, April 23rd. Right, great. So if we just want people in those areas to know that that stuff is already on the calendar, it'll be available if they're interested. Great. Well, I'll tell you, I can't wait to edit this and get it up so people can hear, uh, watch and hear this because this is amazing. I really appreciate you joining me, Kevin. Thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. I had a great time. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's stay in touch. I know we'll be in touch anyways, but let's do this again. 
in a few months. Absolutely. Deal? I'm ready when you are. Cool. Deal. Good. All right. Well, thank you again. And um, to everybody who's watching and listening, as always, thank you for su your support. We've had a lot of new subscribers. I appreciate that greatly. It's our, you know, my mission to bring you top quality information and just basically help everyone improve the quality of their life in some form or other. So thank you for watching. Have a great day.